Hey everybody, this is Charles Sand for the No Film School Podcast, the week of April 8th, 2022. I'm here with George Edelman, editor-of-chief of No Film School. Hello. And we're going to be talking about plagiarizing from your students. Is it ever okay? The answer is no. <laughs> and, and all academics are so trained on plagiarism. Anyway, we'll get to it. We are going to be talking about, is the Godfather too dark? We're going to be talking about, in tech news, Canon rolling out an update for the C70 two years after release, which is a pretty slick thing to see them continuing to do. We've got all that and an Ask No Film School about budgeting for posts this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, our top story this week. In a court of law in Iran, Oscar-winning director Oscar Farhadi has been found guilty of stealing the premise of his movie, A Hero, from a documentary made by one of his students, Azadeh Mahishadeh, called All Winners Are Losers. And Mahishadeh was a student of Farhadi's and had a documentary with a subject that is the same inspiration for a hero, asked for credit on the film, and then Ferrati sued for defamation. Now, there's there's like a billion complicated, messy things here. First off, it's really hard to trace back the origin story of movies. It is. It's a hard thing to do. That's why the Writers Guild does arbitration. There's all sorts of complicated things here. Both of these are based on true stories, the documentary and the feature. So it's possible they were both separately inspired by the same true story. The problem comes in is that the treatment for all winners or losers, the documentary was developed in a workshop that Ferrati was supervising, and that doesn't look good. The second thing is, as a teacher, you should be trained in plagiarism, right? Like I teach film, and I've gone through so many plagiarism workshops, many of which are totally irrelevant to what I teach in film, right? The number of times I've been in plagiarism workshops where I'm like, this is entirely about writing scholarly articles. My students don't do scholarly articles. Like nobody is out there like copying someone else's research in their film. It's just not a thing. But I still go to those trainings and do all those certifications because like, you know, it's part of the pedagogy of being a teacher is you get trained on all this stuff. So it's like, you're not, you're not supposed to do this. And also I think like there's an obligation when you are a professor to be triple careful. Like I have never had this happen, but if a student started pitching a project that was too close to something I was already working on, the first thing I would do is I would say, you have to stop that's close to something I'm already working on. And I, I, I don't think I'm the right person to develop this project with because I think it's too similar to something I'm working on. And then if a student comes in and pitches something that's awesome and you're like, I want to make this. And you as the faculty are like, oh, that's great. I want to make it. You should go to the student and say, let's work on this together. And you can, you know, you can end up with a story by credit or a writing credit or, or a producer credit or whatever. I think this idea is great. And I want to go further with it. To have this idea developed in your workshop and not have figured the relationship out already to make the film without coming to some sort of agreement or just stopping it from being directed in your workshop, I think is messy. I think it's messy as hell. Um, yeah. I think the thing that you outlined it very well, I think that the part of what you said that is the most damning is to not recognize that you're already working on something that bumps a little bit and pumping the brakes because there's definitely a possible outcome. There's many, 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 many ways that people come across the same ideas. Ideas are, we're all living in the same world, responding to the same events, and it's not shocking. Sometimes people are shocked 
And it always, this always shocks me in turn. People are shocked when someone else out there has had an idea they had. I had that idea and I just saw it in a movie. It's like, well, yeah, we're all living in the same world. <laughs> you know, like it's not, our experiences are very different and we have completely different backgrounds and perspectives. But it is not surprising when somebody decides to, you know, tell a story that you were thinking of telling in a similar way. Can I, can I tell an example to that effect? Yeah, please. I wrote a film that was a fantasy love story about a young Jean-Luc Godard, like completely made up, totally fake, but like treated as if real, like having a love affair. And, you know, you would think this is a relatively unique idea within the world of cinema. How, how likely is it that there's going to be two people who are like, what if I take this 50-year-old director and tell like a fantasy love story about that person? And then the dude who directed The Artist like three films later made a film that flopped. That is a fantasy love story about a young Charlie <laughs> Godard. And like, you know, doubles happen. And that guy is so the guy who would make that movie. Oh yeah. no, totally. <laughs> which, is sort of, a, like, which is a compliment to you too. Cause I love that guy and his perspective, but like, that's the, he totally would have that idea. Just yeah, like good for did. that guy. I'm like, good for, good for you. Glad you did it. Glad it's out there. Well done. And, you know, my script had problems that I hadn't figured out how to fix. And so it was it was a great moment where I was like, oh, and now the script is dead. Like now this movie, <laughs> like now, now it's over. So it's one of those things that like these, this does happen. The key is how we navigate it when it does happen. The key for me, like, you know, I'm working on a project right now about deliveristas. I'm obsessed with the deliveristas. There's a deliverista union. It's amazing. Like bike couriers in New York. It's like an amazing thing. And I had a buddy who had an idea a while earlier about deliveristas. And my first thing when I wrote my thing was I got in touch with him and I was like, hey, yours isn't horror. He had a horror thing in Deliveristas. I'm doing like a social realist thing in, in Deliveristas, but can we talk and make sure that it doesn't feel like there's overlap that's going to lead to weird feelings? There? And we had a conversation and he's like, oh yeah, dude, you're doing a completely different thing. Mine's a horror thing in, in that world. This is a good idea. I hope he gets it made. It would be exciting, but like I'm doing social realism, different, different thing. But we talked about it. Like the thing that blows my mind is this was developed in a workshop this guy taught. And like if if an idea comes up in your workshop, you have to like, honestly, it's your obligation as a teacher to be ethical, to be extra ethical about this, to be like twice as ethical as no normal people. Definitely. And it's also your obligation as a creator. I once walked into, it was Bad Robot. And we pitched, me and my partner, something we were really excited about. We've been pitching it everywhere. And they stopped us very early. And they're like, we can't, hear anymore or do this and don't leave your materials here. Like <laughs> it was like a very like we have something quite very similar that's ours but like similar enough that we don't want to touch it. And like we and very professional, disappointing, but it was still like those kinds of things. Plus there were lots of there have been many things since and around. It was it was in the ether. I've seen versions of it from many different people this idea. And I think that what happens is if you're professional and you actually intend to do the thing, then you pump the brakes. That's what makes this not so great, is that you would definitely pump the brakes if you intended to do your version. If you were just outright stealing, and I'm not saying you did because I don't know everything about it, but then you might not pump the brakes, <laughs> right? That's your motivation not to, is to do something shady. That's the reason you wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying I'm to... Steal I try and be generous and I always try and assume the best of people. And I'm trying to imagine a scenario like the best case scenario is that the director Ferrari forgot. forgot. Yeah. Right. And that it was separated enough 
by time where it was like years later and they and, just and again if if we're going to play the give the benefit of the doubt game i could definitely see a version where it was not a story he was thinking about he it was one of many many things in many workshops and then many years later he came across a similar different story loved it and maybe had didn't maybe he had some like sense memory of loving it or working with it but not like oh i remember that student and i remember that project and i'm giving him total benefit of the doubt i don't know that i even believe this but i could fathom a universe where it just wasn't you know like, oh, that's right. Like, maybe later you'd be like, yeah, but mine was different because blah, 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 you know? I mean, it's also just tricky because, like, yes, maybe he's teaching hundreds of workshops. You know, at the film school where I teach, we have, like, 200 students a year. So, you know, over the seven years I've taught here, I've probably had a 1,000 students. And I can remember pitches that I heard six years ago. Like, I can just rattle them off. Like, maybe I have a good memory for those things, but like, there's actually, there's a great story idea for a short film that one of my students pitched in 2016. And every couple of years, I still email him. And I'm like, have you done that yet? You better do that. That's a really good idea for a short. Make that happen. And he's always like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm getting to it. I'm getting to it. And so like, the good ideas, the ones that stick with you, like, I remember whose student, like, I remember, it's just, it's, tr this is like, it's really hard to have the benefit of the doubt here. It's I'm true, fine. because again, if it was a pitch, it would be easier to give the benefit of the doubt. But working with them through it and, and them making the finished thing makes it really hard to believe that there was no memory of, of the beats and of the process because it's so similar. And you would go turn around and later do a similar thing as well. Yeah, bummer. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the problem is also like what other repercussions there will be it's all a mess. All well, maybe some financial thing, but yeah, I think one of the hard parts with stuff like it, this is the is really the creative cost because you're like, oh man, that was my thing. Now, I didn't get any piece of the action, not in terms of money, but in terms of you know career stuff. Well, it's also one of those things of like, yeah, it is complicated. I, I try not to talk about this too much, but not this year's Oscars, but last year's Oscars. I had personal connections to two people who had legitimate claims of plagiarism at last year's Oscars. And yeah, I mean, it's really frustrating because you're watching a thing that was like good enough that you did. The concept was good enough. The script was good enough. Whatever it was, was good enough that it like went on to be Oscar nominated work. And it did good things for the people who plagiarized your career, but it did nothing for your yeah. career. Yeah. And so like, you know, on your deathbed, when you're hopefully not worried about money anymore, you're like, well, at least the thing that I wrote or whatever got made and I'm proud it got made and I'm glad it's out there in the world. But like right now, when you're like, I would really like it that if that had turned into like more work. Yeah. And it was so funny that it was in the same year I knew multiple people. And I was like, I wonder if this is a problem every year. I wonder if every year at the Oscars, there's at least something that was plagiarized from somebody. And uh, it's just coincidental that this year I, I happen to know those people who got ripped off, but it's not every year that I know the people, but it's every year they're getting ripped off. Yeah. I mean, don't plagiarize guys. Like, hey, if someone else has a great idea, collaborate with them. Say, hey, I'm an experienced director with a lot of connections. Can we collaborate on this? Would you like a producer credit or story by credit? Like, come on. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely room for a lot of people on the same project. Yeah. And then found guilty in court. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling 
wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Moving on, next story, the internet. And when I say the internet, I'm usually just meaning Twitter, but I'm just going to say the internet, although I just mean Twitter. Twitter has decided The Godfather probably shouldn't have been too dark. Not thematically dark, by the way. No, visually too dark. (laughs) Specifically. It wasn't like people were like, man, what a downer. I wish they had done it on an upbeat. No, no one said that. I mean, maybe someone did, but that's not what this is. So basically, someone sort of kicked off a viral tweet thread with a screen cap of a shot from Godfather, specifically Michael in the hospital, getting ready to protect um, his father. And, you know, it is a it is a, a high contrast shot. And they screen capped it and they shared sort of the sentiment of like, why does everyone talk about this being a beautifully shot movie? This is like bad shooting. And then- Can I quote, can I quote yes, real quick? Quote. Uh, at J, <laughs> call out his account, that feels screwed up. At JWT's cosplay, that I feel insane because this shot looks like crap to me, dead ass. Which I think is just funny <laughs> in general, but it is very underlit if you ask me. He continued, he or she or they continued. It is very underlit if you ask me. The actor's face is not very visible at all here. There should be a dim, warm subject light to make his face a lot more visible, or they should tone down the lighting in the back because the way it is now, it won't read as well. Now, it's a shot of Michael Corleone in the hospital. You remember that part of the movie. <laughs> I just think, and then in in the tweet thread, somebody somebody said Disney prevents, presents Marvel's The Godfather, and it's like completely blown out, and you can see him, and it looks like crap, because Gordon Willis, the Prince of Darkness, that's what they called him, is like one of the greatest cinematographers who ever lived, and The Godfather is one of the most artistic, beautiful uses of dark and shadow and everything. So it's hilarious, and Depressing all at the same time. Thanks, Twitter. I mean, th- what this well, what this really brings me back to, and I think this is an important concept to keep talking about on this podcast and in general as film educators and filmmakers, is there is an inherent human desire for there to be right and wrong answers. And I remember really early in my cinematography career, I was like setting something up and I was talking about a decision we could make. I was like, oh, well, we could bring up the light. It was a shot against a window. And I was like, oh, well, we could bring the light up inside so we can see a little bit more what's going on outside. Or we could be darker inside, exposed for inside, let the window blow out. And for me, it's a choice. And for everyone, it's a choice. Deci- exposure is always a decision. I always say that when I teach cinematography. It's that like, you're exposed. there's not a right and wrong. And I just remember the director looking at me and saying, I just want to do what's right. And mm. I think that there is like this human thing of like, well, what mm. what is right? And I think as you start to learn cinematography, you start to learn some basic rules like that, well, there should be light on people's faces. And if there's a white wall in the background, you want to try and darken it down by keeping the light off the white wall. And these are like very practical things that are like, you know, I always try and tell my students, I'm like, all right, what I'm going to give you is like the guidelines for basic work. If you book a, a, a job or you're doing a documentary interview, 
here's the expectations. You have a little bit of light on their face so that they're cleanly exposed. You darken the wall in the background. Like that is what is being assumed of you when you're doing a doc interview. But the movies you end up shooting might have different needs and different expectations and different jobs. And so I think what we're watching, and I mean, the thing that sucks, there's this phrase I, I like to hear, which is growing up in public, which is like, you know, there was some privacy to some of mm. my youthful mistakes. There's only yeah. one picture. Of, I knocked all my teeth out and uh, there's only one picture of it. And I'm the only one who has it. It's not on the internet. You can't see me without my teeth. Although I do think I looked kind of cool without it. There's a little swagger Posted. to it, but. <laughs> Posted. <laughs> Posted on Instagram. <laughs> no, because I didn't grow up in public. I grew up in private. <laughs> right. I and know. so like the moment I had of being like, well, wait a minute. That was a decision that they made. I didn't post it to Twitter. This person just seems like they're in, in the process of learning. It seems like they've just reached a level where they're like, oh, wait a minute, we should have light on faces and darkened backgrounds. And like, they're just putting those things together. And then it's five or six steps down the learning road where you're like, oh, wait a minute, Gordon Willis knew all that and made choices about that moment and the story as to why this shot looks so good within that context. And I think, you know, it's, it's good for us to keep reminding ourselves that like, there are no rights and wrongs. Like there isn't, like there are morally, right? It would be wrong yes. for me to just kick a random puppy. But like in filmmaking, there are goals we have and strategies we're pursuing, but they're always in aid of telling a specific story. Yeah. And like it should, this is a great, to remind ourselves of that. It's a great point. And there's a, so many things that it brings to mind. One for me is that I always loved that they said about Orson Welles and Citizen Kane that he didn't really know. Like he came in without, a filmmaking education, so to speak. And so he was asking to do things that were like kind of crazy. And they, and Greg Tolan, the cinematographer, was very versed in filmmaking and found ways to do them. And it's beautiful and amazing and, and like medium changing. But I think there's a little bit of romanticism about that, which is like savantness, where you can just kind of step in and be like, I don't know the rules. I'm just going to break them. Um, rules were made to be broken. But I'm going to use like kind of a, a sort of an athletics or sports metaphor. A lot of our listeners probably won't care, but what, I, what I'm what i reminded of is kids will watch a professional at the highest level perform something. And then they will go out and practice that thing. And that thing is not a fundamental thing. It's usually something that's like very, very, very advanced that you use only when you're in XYZ circumstances. And they do it at the highest levels because they've done all the fundamentals and it's like a chess match where all the basic moves are not only known by the move maker, but also by the defender. So it, you get to this level of elite, like, well, I got to counter, 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 counter. And it gets really complicated. And, the, and, and so you don't go out to the park and practice that. You go out to the park and you get the basics. And I think w w where I'm going with this is that I think this individual is, like you said, learning in public. And also actually looking at this one isolated image and saying, hey, this is not properly done. And I think we all jump all over it. We make fun of it. I certainly made jokes about it just now, but it's, it isn't, right? By the book, it's context. And it's because Gordon Willis was operating at the absolute highest level where they were doing counters to counters to counters to counters. And it was like this moment being exposed this way is part of a, a thread in a fabric and you pull it out and you look at it and you're like weird thread, you know, but not in this context. And I think it's, it's all well and good to look at it and say like, Hey, this is not fundamentally sound, but the greatest artists are no longer fundamentally sound in any craft because they start undoing and redoing 
to, to change the context. And that's what amazes us. And I think, just to end the rant, I think that what becomes truly beautiful and transcendent in any medium or practice is when people start doing that stuff and you're watching them like improvisational music or whatever, because you can't just like walk in cold. Some people can probably and listen to like Miles Davis or Mozart or whatever and be like, ah, oh, yes, I get it. Like it's, it doesn't usually work that way. You kind of have to know where they're building from. And then over time, you develop an appreciation for all the ways they're undoing and redoing things. So to me, it's kind of just cool that this happened because he, he is, this person is learning in public. And that reminds us how complex and beautiful this process can be. I mean, there is a person who took all this well and is not quitting all of their social media and hiding. I'm, I'm not that person. If this happened to me, I would quit all of my social media and move to the Dakotas. But like, <laughs> there are people, I mean, I'm just being honest. Like, I'm very sensitive. Like, oh my God, if I, if I had a tweet that got dunked on as hard as this tweet got dunked on, I would feel bad. I would, I would, I would hide. Like, I'm sensitive. Oh, me too. There, Especially if it was a certain age. Like, I, I also oh, did no. a lot of very, very stupid and defensive you know, when people didn't like something really bad that I put on video, I would start arguing with them and being defense. I was very, oh, yeah. very defensive and sensitive at that age. But I really hope that this person like views it as, as part of the learning process. Like I'm excited if they power through this, which I hope they do. I hope they're excited on the other side of it to have learned some things about like the subjectivity of aesthetics too, is that like, you know, as much as this seems crazy to say, aesthetics change with time. Like, I grew up with The Godfather as the most beautiful movie I'd ever seen. But if you're 22 right now, you were born in the year 2000. You grew up watching HD video, which has a different color palette and different techniques. I'm like, there's a point at which the aesthetics will move on such that people view The Godfather as just an old movie. To the way, and like that hurts me to say it aloud as a middle-aged dude, but like that like aesthetics will change. If you grew up on video games where the faces are always lit because video games that's like very much part of seeing the characters and then you know, depending upon what you've aesthetically gone through. And then, yeah, going back to what you said about, like, learning how to appreciate Miles. Like, learning how to appreciate The Godfather is a skill that will take time as you grow and develop yourself. I also wanted to go back to that thing. There's this weird fetishization of amateurism that happens mm -hmm. where people love to talk about, like, Orson Welles knew nothing about movies, and he showed up, and he knew nothing, and he did this thing. And I'm like, well, that's great, but it's also not true. Like, Orson Welles made short films before Citizen Kane, people forget, and they were very experimental and very interesting, and he was a very successful theater director already, even though he was only 26, he'd been an actor for a while, and so he had all these and the radio skills plays. and acting skills. Yeah, yeah, and, and the War of the Worlds, like he definitely yeah. had already de demonstrated his genius as a storyteller. Well, and or a whether or not he, I mean, I don't know if he designated genius or not, I've, I've, I've never actually listened to War of the Worlds all the way through because it's a little cheese ball. And then some of his short films are not amazing. But I think the point I was getting at is he'd done reps. He'd gone out there and he'd like done reps. He'd like made stuff and figured out some stuff about story. And he had all of his experiences as an actor to bring to character and screenplay and shaping. And then the script was written by Mankiewicz, who is a very experienced writer. And it was shot by Greg Toland, who was like an incredibly experienced cinematographer, who invented a lot of the technologies like that were used on Kane, like it worked with Caltech on the lens coatings, worked with Kodak on the new stocks, worked to, with the lab to develop the chip chart, like invented the goddamn stool that was used to adjust the lights. It was like a special three-step stool he ended up with the patent for. So like had that technical expertise. The fun thing I think of when I think of Orson Welles showing up on those sets is not Orson Welles showing up and knowing nothing and then everyone covering for him. 
it was Orson Welles showing up and knowing different stuff. So like the mm-hmm. anecdote I always think about is Orson Welles didn't know you could do dissolves in camera. And on a theater stage, you do dissolves with lighting. You turn the lights down, you turn them up. That's how you do a dissolve. And so he just assumed you did that on set, which is a place where he was ignorant about filmmaking. But he knew art. He knew how you told that story on stage. He knew he wanted to dissolve there. And so, you know, the famous story goes is that he did those dissolves in camera. And one of the gaffers was like, you know, you can do that in post, right? But Tolan was like, don't tell him that. Like, I'm interested in seeing how this works to bring this other knowledge to this shoot. And so it's not, for me, there's this weird fetishization of like, Orson Welles was just a little baby and he was like pooping in his diaper and he rolled up and he just knew everything. And it's like, well, no, he had expertise and knowledge and had studied all this other stuff. And then he brought that other stuff to film. And that's what I think is super cool and exciting. So like dive as deep as you can into whatever it is you do. And then you bring that to other medium. And then you're like Tom Ford directing a movie, which has gone really well for Tom Ford. Yes. Well said. I didn't mean to imply that Citizen, that citizen oh, and I didn't mean Orson, to imply Orson that you Wells said had no that Orson Welles was yeah. a little diaper baby. I don't know where the diaper <laughs> baby thing came Although, from. Although, I think he kind of became a big diaper baby towards the end. Oh, no, and I mean, in the end, I'm sure Orson <laughs> Welles had a diaper fetish and was a big diaper baby at the end of his life. But I don't think no, he got true. into the diaper baby phase. I love that you, the way you put it, that he he knew a lot about different things. And I think that sometimes people underrate how much you can get as a like how much value there can, you can cross disciplinary skills. You know, Ridley Scott, he was a visual artist in advertising. You know, there's a lot of cross disciplinary skills. Sometimes I think if you're only filmmaker, filmmaker to the bone till I die, like it's kind of limiting in what you know and what you bring to the table or it can be. But yeah, there's a lot to this in, in how we learn. I think the real key, the cool thing about this event, this Twitter event, is that the key to, there's a key in it to how we continue to unlock the great works of the past. In a lot of ways, we just are programmed culturally to leave them behind and to start to only value what is current. And that that's part of the default because things are going to keep advancing and we're going to look back and be like, man, this is like wonky and boring and paced weird and off and not as, but the key is trying to unlock and understand the context and what people were doing in the building blocks. And then you really appreciate something. And I think it, I, I really do think it will make you better at whatever you do because you'll see the evolution of the thing. You'll master it and love it and understand it differently. That's why I think there's so much value to continuing the, like preservation, but study of old work. I think it can't be overdone. I also, I love that. I'm going to go back and keep saying, I love that original tweet. You're trying to figure out why other people see something in an image that you don't see. And you're like, wait a minute, guys, everybody else seems to think this is great, but, but I don't see it. And like, awesome. Like I would way, I would way take that over someone being like, yeah, that's totally beautiful. But inside you're like, I don't get it. It's like, at least this person had the balls to be honest and be like, I, I don't get it. What's going on? What am I missing here? Totally agree. Yeah. I'd rather be. Yeah, I totally agree. Because the, because the original thing came with an innocent, like, I don't get why this is considered so great. And I think that's yeah. a great challenging statement to then be like, show me. And then maybe Whereas, I guarantee you, 15-year-old me smoking my cigarette would be like, oh, yeah, most beautiful, yeah. beautiful shot of all time. Even if at that point, I don't know that I would have known what to say about why. 
No, I totally appreciated, uh, pretended to appreciate things that I didn't really get. And then occasionally I would have like a real like outburst about like, you know, why do I have to watch last year at Marion Bad? It's awful and boring. And I wonder if I watched it now and maybe like with a little more context, I'd be like, man, the black and white photography, the shape. I don't know. Last year, Marion Bad I have watched, but it's so deliberately off-putting. Like its point (laughs) is to be off-putting. That's it. Like its goal in life is to be off-putting that I appreciate now. I mean, Last Year at Marion Bad is really like the start of trolling. Or not the start of trolling. Yeah. But like, <laughs> like, Last Year at Marion is, is trolling. That's what it is. It was it's cinematic like, trolling. Yeah. That's oh, yeah. True. <laughs> but see, I think um, I could get into that now. Like, I remember seeing Spring Breakers, the Harmony Korean movie, and I was like, oh, this is a troll. I love it. Like, I think I'm more, I'm, I'm troll ready at this point in my life. I think life. the internet has changed all of our brains. Yeah. Yes. I didn't mean that to make you as sad as it just did. <laughs> I heard the sadness in your voice, and I yeah. was like, I'm sorry. All right, moving on to tech news. So Canon came out with a camera two years ago, the C70. You know, everybody knows my opinions on cameras. Um, I'm, like, neutral to good on Canon. I owned a 5D Mark II at one point. Like, I, I, I'm not an anti-Canon person, and their autofocus is great. But the C70 was one of those cameras that snuck up on me in terms of being a hit. Like, it came out, and it was, like, it was still Super 35 after full frame was becoming popular, and it was a little pricier than I thought it should have been for the features, and and it was just one of those things. And then it was, like, a huge motherfucking hit. And, like, so many people I know bought one, and I was like, what did I miss? Like, I, I just, it was one of those things that just didn't, like, you know, I also, I full disclosure, I slept on the original Blackmagic Pocket 4K where I did a review, and I was like, I don't understand. And then it was a huge hit, and then I eventually bought a 6K Pro, and I love it. And, like, I was wrong. My review didn't say I hated it. My review was just, like, I don't understand. And I just didn't understand. And I eventually got around to understanding. Regardless, C70 has been a huge hit. It's been out about two years, which is crazy because it came out during COVID, and it's, like, almost two years ago that it came out. And it's been a a great hit, but they've just released a new major feature two years in, which is sort of crazy, and to Canon's credit. Like, it's very rare. There are some companies that notoriously will have an update or two after the camera comes out and then will never do anything to it again. And so for Canon, two years later, to be like, hey, here's internal RAW. I think if you're an owner, you might be like, well, how come it took you two years? Like if the hardware was there, how come it took you two years to do this? As not an owner, I can just be like, oh, well, that's really nice of you to finally drop some internal RAW. Internal RAW, as everybody should probably remember by this point, is a complicated thing because Red owns a patent on internal RAW. And so anytime a camera wants to support it, they have to pay a license fee to RED, which is one of the many, many reasons that RED continues to be in business, even after their little hydrogen thing. So I'm assuming, you know, it's Cinema Raw Lite, which is the same format that like the C200 supports and a few other supports. And you have to run it to like a pretty fast SD card. Like you're not going to be able to be out there all crazy on a normal card, you're going to need like a V90 card or something, which is more expensive. But it's internal raw to an SD card if you get one of the good ones. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. That this is kind of great. What's so funny is that at the end of the review, the reviewer is like, yeah, the camera's starting to show its age. And I'm like, yeah, it, it, there are some features it's missing, even though it's only two years old. Is that is that partly because the release coming mid-pandemic or early pandemic changed the usage so it feels like it got less 
mileage when it was in its prime. Is that possible that that's part of why it feels like it's already old, but it's also new? Like, did or is it just that two years is legitimately like the a, a time frame within which a, a camera like this will start to feel old? I mean, the thing I always tell people when they're considering buying a camera is if rentals are part of your monetization strategy, if you're like, oh, I'm going to buy this camera and then I'm going to rent it out and that's going to pay it off. If that's part of your plan, your goal should be to pay it off within 12 months or 18 months if it's an airy, because at that point, the rate will be too low to make it worthwhile. And so my assumption here is that we're seeing like two years so I think part of that is that, you know, no camera is that hot two years later anymore, except obviously the Alexa LF, but even the original Alexa mini is not that hot anymore. Although I would still happily shoot on it for a lot of things I shoot. But then I think the other thing is that we're in a place where, you know, at this point, a camera is just a very fancy computer. And so even when you don't see massive upgrades in sensor technology, you see so many other upgrades in everything else surrounding the camera for like better slow-mo and better color reproduction and better all that, which is all just processing. And so as chips continue to keep getting faster and faster, cameras just get better and better at a rate that is faster than it used to be. So, you know, the reasonable assumption you could make in 2002 where you're like, I'll buy a DBX100 and I'll get rentals out of it for two years (laughs) is just gone. Like there are people I know who bought Red Ones in 2008 that were still getting tons of rentals on the Red One in 2012. But I don't think that that will continue to be the case into the future. I think we're moving into a very different... The model is completely different. Like, yeah. for the how you, how you navigate it as, like, owner-operator or anything. Just, yeah. yeah. Well, but I, but I think it's coming... I think it's spreading, not decreasing. Like, cameras have been like this for a while. Lenses are starting to be like this, where, like, new features are coming out. Now they're covering full frame. Now they have better autofocus. Now that they have better slash eye features. Like, it used to be you had a reasonably good assumption. If I bought some super speeds in the early 80s, I would get 30 years out of them reasonably. I think you still get 30 years out of lenses if you buy them. But, like, new features come out. Like, they improved the slash eye. So now your four-year-old slash eye are not as good as the new slash eye. Or LDS, the... um airy version of slash eye the lens data you get out of lenses so like or like lighting oh my god lighting yeah the like pace at which new shit is happening in lighting is frankly flabbergasting and you know the big nab is not happening for another two weeks but the thing that happens in london bsc expo is happening right now and so i'm getting all of these emails from vendors who are like hey are you gonna be a bsc expo or like developers or whatever come by this booth or come by that booth and like there are at least two companies where somebody's like, oh, I'll be at this person's booth. And I've never heard of the company. And I'm like, they're big enough to have a booth at BSC Expo and they make lighting. And I'm looking at their website and I'm like, oh, you're a real company. You make real stuff. Never heard of you. And like, I'm a cinematography academic who writes for a film blog about new tech. And there's too many for me to keep track of. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, I I guess I think of the, of the example in like other everyday life with technology is just like how quickly our other devices become not obsolete, but just slower and outdated. Like you can, you can keep using them for a long time, but if you were dependent on their ability professionally to be like elite, like tip of the spear, like you would be like, man, this phone's three years old. It's not tip of the spear, like not even close. I mean, you can still get by with it, but it's true. I I mean, I get it. Like as a not person, as a not owning and living with my camera, like using a camera is not my livelihood. 
but I can see all the other ways the speed at which tech develops is, is so rapid. I mean, we're also in this interesting place. One of the things I have to say I really like is that we're still in a place where there's not total dominance. Like if you think about cell phones, there's still a new cell phone every year, but it's either Apple or Android. And Android is really a competition between like two or three companies like Samsung and somebody else. And one of the fun things about film is like we have all of this updating, but that updating is also surrounded by like 50 companies in lighting, still 10 companies in cameras. And it's like, it's kind of fun that it's not quite so, even Airy, the most dominant of all dominant, like is not everything. It's not 40% of the market. It's not 30% of the market. And I, I like that. It's kind of great that we still have some chaos. All right, moving on. Our final thing this week is an Ask No Film School about budgeting for post-production, which like I worked in post for a very long time and went to post house, and I'm more than happy to talk about this. A reader has written in, hey, I've done my film and I'm having a hard time finding an editor who can do the whole job. I met with someone who says they can edit the project for nine grand. I had them do a demo scene and the scene needs color grading. But the person I hired says they don't do color grading and that there's sound tweaking that they don't do as well. I'm a first time filmmaker and I don't know who to trust. With my nine grand budget and a 50 minute film, I might even need to shoot some more footage to make it a feature. Is there a good place I can go to get everything in full for that amount? All right. So Cyrus, no. <laughs> um, you can't get, you, you can't <laughs> I was like, Charles, this is the, this is such a good question for you. I'm just throwing yeah. that out there. So you're not going to get your full feature through post for nine grand. It's just not the way the world works. But here's the thing. You're asking for two things. You're saying, I would like one person to deal with everything. And I would like it to not cost much money. And the trick to this is the more you want to save money on a thing in filmmaking, the more you need to understand the subject. So like when I used to own a post house, if we had a client who was like, I don't know anything about anything. And we're having to do everything. We're having to organize every single part. We're structuring. And because they don't know anything about anything, everything takes longer because it, we're always having to teach them what's going on and it's much harder. Then yeah, there's no way we would have ever, any professional post house will not, not do full post on a feature film for nine grand. That's just not realistic. However, do I have friends or have I in my life worked on projects where we did full feature post on that budget because we understood all of the steps? probably not that budget, but like I've certainly been around scenarios where someone was willing to edit a feature for six or seven grand because it was all divided up into separate jobs where like editing is a discrete job. You don't ideally want one person doing your edit and your color and your sound because it's not going to be as good. They're very different skills. So you want to hire an editor and a colorist and a sound designer and a mixer, and you want to edit them all individually. And you need to understand a lot about what they're doing because it will go faster the more you understand it yourself. And the more you have a mastery of the whole process. So I think trying to find a one-stop shop is going to be a mistake because I don't think a one-stop shop, like, because what you really want is you want a post house where they do everything in house, but there's no way that they're going to do everything in in house on a feature for nine grand. So what you should do instead is you should do the long standing indie feature workflow of the director becomes the post supervisor. They break out their budget and they say, okay, I have nine grand. I'm going to say, I'm going to pay my editor 10 grand. I'm going to pay sound four grand. I'm going to pay f- color four grand. And for 18 grand, I'm going to get through post. 
And obviously, I know you started with eight grand and you're going to spend the time of post raising the other nine grand so you can finish your film properly. Is it possible out there to find someone who will color your film for a grand and someone who will sound design your film for a grand? Probably. They will probably not be very good. Although, <laughs> maybe if you're, I mean, just being real, maybe outside a major market, maybe if you're in the Dakotas and you can find someone young and hungry in the Dakotas, you might be able to find someone who will do that work at a smaller budget. But like, color grading a feature is a lot of work. You were going to hide in the Dakotas when you made that tweet. <laughs> so it could yeah. be you in a time warp. If, if I had tweeted. If I'm I just thinking tweeted, of the Dakotas. Yes. You brought them up twice, so I'm trying to tie it together somehow, sloppily. I just want I to throw out there. I'm not sure that why you keep bringing it up. <laughs> I just want to throw out there that there that what you're saying makes total sense. One way to it's not a, a piece of advice. It's just a like you said, your director becomes your post soup. Sometimes when you're directing or producing a project like this, and you just know that you're not going to be able to do more than 9k or something you're like well what are the things i can do beyond being the post do i have another skill set that makes it possible for me to get through this movie where i'm obviously not getting paid? that's how i would have done it and did it where it was like well i can do this part that's time consuming and expensive and then maybe hire somebody to do the part i can't do but you it's if you don't have that skill already or your director or one of your producers or somebody else who's invested already doesn't have that then yeah going to cost you more. Well, and I was about to say that, but then I backed off. But now that you've said it, I'm going to say the thing that I was actually going to say there, which is we have like countless articles on No Film School about how, like there's one I'm thinking of right now where like a husband and wife team decided to do a feature during COVID and their whole budget was 15 grand. And they were like, you know what? We're just going to teach ourselves to edit, do sound design and do color. And they did it all in Resolve, which is free software. And they used the Resolve tutorials and they did edit, color and sound design for free as like a married couple. And they stayed married, apparently, at least as long as the article on a feature film. So like, you could do that. Here's my warning if you do that. If you do that, you have to finish. If someone comes to me and says, hey, I only have four grand. Could you color a feature for four grand? That's a little low, but like, I'd be like, all right, well, we'd have to talk about flexible scheduling and what dates work, but like, maybe we could figure something out. If someone came to me and said, hey, I am halfway through finishing coloring my film, but I've hit a wall and I'm having trouble figuring stuff out. Can you finish the color grade? I'm halfway done. I want you to take the work I've already done and keep going on it. I would either say no or four grand a day. Because like getting into someone's project that's halfway finished is a mess. So if you're like, you know what? Let me see what I can bite off myself. I would try taking a couple scenes, practicing. And you're like, oh, maybe I can crack color myself. Maybe I can crack sound myself. Like maybe these are skills I can develop. And then you do it, but you got to finish it. You got to take it all the way to the end. That is the other big thing you see. I mean, we have so many articles in nofilmschool.com about that, where people are like, I couldn't afford to hire. So I just figured it out. I mean, that is like the indie film ethos. Totally. And that's how you, you know, self-taught and like kind of muscle through and do the best you can. That's kind of how you, you make it through the indie process. And it's totally doable. All right. Well, good luck. Good luck with the rest of your film. 50 minutes is a little light. I think you're going to have to shoot some more boxing scenes to get it up. 85 is considered traditionally the the minimum for a movie, which is why I don't know if you guys saw the SNL sketch. I love short movies with Pete Davidson last night rapping about how he doesn't like long movies. They listed all the runtimes of the movies he loves, and they were all like 85, 86 minutes, because that's like the traditional minimum to call yourself a feature film for distributors. And you increase the likelihood that Pete Davidson will like you.
We got to get back to the 90 to, to 110 range. I just saw something that a Jurassic Park movie, the new one is like two and two and a half hours. Like, come on. Come on. I mean, Godfather's three and change and it's great. Like, I yeah, think but, a movie should be Jurassic the Jurassic Park six is, is not going to be. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. Well, you would, you, the here's movie. the thing. You might not, you might say that, but I guarantee you're going to be able to see everybody's face in every shot in Jurassic Park six. They're all going to be perfectly lit. <laughs> I'm putting it out there right now. I'm betting on it. All right, everybody. I'm on the internet at Charles Hayne. I'm doing YouTube videos. Check those out. Somebody, everybody in YouTube has been so nice. So if you go and watch my YouTube videos, only say nice stuff. I'm not ready for the mean YouTube comments that I hear are coming. And then I'm Twitter, Instagram, Charles Hayne, H-A-I-N-E. I'm doing stuff. George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. You can find me on Twitter at George Edelman. You can read about everything we talked about today and more at nofilmschool.com. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, check us out on Instagram and YouTube. And yeah, be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast and send us your questions like the great one we got today. Send them to editor at nofilmschool.com and let us know what you think. And thanks for listening. 